okay, so real quick, I know we only missed like one week, but it feels like it's just been forever. Uh, so we are in our series called The Happiest Person Alive about joy. So just for a minute, turn to the people around you and try and remind each other of what we've been talking about. So what's stuck out to you or, or whatever, just real quick. And I don't even care how many people, just a few people around you, just kind of remind each other what's stuck out to you. I don't know what's stuck out to you guys, but one of the primary ways I would summarize kind of what we've been talking about in this series is that every single one of us is universally always trying to pursue joy. It's like the thing in the human heart that we all want. But for us all wanting it, we're surprisingly bad at it because we're looking for joy in like all the wrong places. And so what it means to be a Christian is to learn how to have joy constantly. Or another way to talk about it is to be content in every circumstance that you're in. So for your joy not to be dependent on you having the perfect circumstances, but for it to be contentment no matter what, because you have this kind of settled trust in God. So whether life's good or whether it sucks, you can be joyful, right? So that's what we've been talking about. But tonight I want to talk about kind of the foundation of that. Because here's the deal. If you don't have hope, then that, that is useless. That doesn't make any sense. So in other words, this is what we're saying, that you can get through any circumstance, no matter how bad your life is, no matter how much it sucks, you can still be joyful, you can be content. But if that's all there is to life, like if just life ends there on kind of the crappy note, then what was the point of this whole thing? And so the foundation of kind of everything that we've been talking about is actually hope. This idea that there's something more out there for us that we're all kind of wondering and longing for that we want to be a part of. And the thing that I thought of when, when I was thinking about this was Hebrews 11. So you don't, you don't have to flip there. That's not our main text, but I wanted to share it with you quick. Hebrews 11 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. Okay, so I want you to hear that, that this type of hope is not the hope that you typically think about, where you're kind of, you're hoping for, you're hoping you get something that you want for Christmas, right? Like, where you're sort of anticipating it, and you're hoping you might get it, but you're, you're sort of wishing for it, you're not sure it's going to come true. What this is saying is there's a hope out there that you can have a conviction on, that even that, though you haven't seen it, it's assured to you, it's promised to you, it will happen. And so hope is just kind of eagerly anticipating that, and letting it influence the way that you live. He keeps going on a little bit further down in that chapter, verse 13. In having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Okay, that's key. The Christian perspective of this life is that this world is not your home, that we're strangers and we're exiles. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So this is what the Bible is saying is that all of us are deeply longing for home, but we don't have it yet. So one of, the, one of the first books that I read as a Christian was by this guy named John Eldred. Called, uh, it's a book called Desire. Now, I don't remember like anything about it. I'm not recommending it because I probably disagree with most of it by now. But I, there was this one like little story that is just kind of like a weird random story about animals but that he used as like an example 
of what the human condition is like that just like stuck with me. It just like haunted me. Okay, so, so here's his story. It's about a sea lion, okay? It's, it's weird, but just stick with me. It's about a sea lion who is caught in the middle of a desert and knows that he was made for the sea and he's longing for it. He wants to get back to the sea, but he has no idea how to find it. And so this sea lion like spends his life wandering around trying to get out of the desert and back to the sea that he knows that he was made for, but he can't find it and so he settles. And so he ends up like sitting under this this little tree with like one branch that kind of gives him some shade and this dirty like puddle that he just kind of sits in and he's sitting there and he's kind of going, I thought that the sea would be better than this. There should be something more. And this is his point in that, is he's saying that's what it's like to be a human being in this world. That you were made for something more than you can experience on this earth. That you've got desires that are pointing to something that you were made for, that are pointing to home. But you're looking everywhere to try and find it, to try and fulfill it, and nothing's actually satisfying it. And then in the story, there's this turtle, this tortoise that comes up, and he, the, the tortoise kind of represents like what the world is like. And this is what the, the tortoise says to the sea lion is he comes up and he says, Hey, maybe this actually is the sea. You should learn how to be happy here. And that's actually what our culture tells us about that desire deep in us for something more than what we found here is it, is it says, Hey, Actually, maybe this place really is what you're looking for. You should just learn how to be happy here. Or another way to say it is, you should just give up. Like, ignore those desires in your soul that tell you that you were made for more than this. And just recognize that this world is all that there is, and just try to be happy here. And so, build your little heaven here. Try and make this place into your home. Pursue pleasure, and then maybe you'll find it. Maybe you'll find that happiness. But here's the deal. If you're tempted to believe that's true. So I know in a room this size, there's some of you that don't actually believe Christianity. That, that you don't actually believe that there is the God who exists that we've been talking about. Or some of you maybe call yourself Christian, but you're struggling very hard with doubt. And you're not sure that this God is actually real. And you tend to lean towards kind of just naturalism, a natural view of the world. So, this is what I want you to know if that is the case. That if this world is kind of entirely explained by natural causes, or if you hear me, I'm about to talk about home. I'm about to talk about heaven. I'm kind of giving it away, okay? But if you, if you hear me talk about that and it's like, yeah, that sounds a little bit too good to be true. That, that sounds like somebody just made that up because it makes people feel good. I want you to recognize that the only other alternative is to acknowledge that this world is entirely meaningless. Now hear me on this. I'm not trying to insult you. I'm not saying your life is pointless or meaningless. I actually think the exact opposite. But I'm saying that the logical explanation of your view of the world, or the logical conclusion of your view of the world, is that this place is meaningless. Here's what I mean. Is that stuff like love, okay, it's Valentine's Day. I guess I had to mention that. Didn't realize that until now. Stuff like love, that we all know is real, that even though it's intangible, there's something real to it, that we all want to experience it and we know it when we're in it, that love actually isn't real. 
It's just some neurons in your brain. It's just some chemicals in your body that things like beauty, that when you're wandering around in the woods, when you go north, when you go to Duluth, when you go to Superior and you see the trees and you see the cliffs and you see the water and that thing happens to you that we're talking about all the time, that that's actually not real, that that's all just an illusion. That you have to admit that that you're hopeless, right? That, That when you die, you're just going to go into the ground, you're going to get eaten by worms, and this whole thing was for nothing. Now, I know some atheists, I have some friends, and I've read some atheists who I respect a ton because they're intellectually honest enough to acknowledge that that is the end of a naturalistic world. And they're willing to say, yeah, like, I hate this, it's meaningless, but I just think that that's true. And I actually respect that honesty a lot. But here's also what I want you to see. I know I'm getting deep here, but I want you to see this. That if, if that's your case, here's what you have to acknowledge is that almost all human beings universally have said that there's real meaning in this life. That we've intuitively and, and intellectually believed that there's something more than just kind of like natural causes. And even if you don't admit that, you have to admit that throughout the history of the world, almost every human being has been born with this inclination that there's something more and that this life matters. Now, the only explanation I've ever heard for why that would be the case is that it's an evolutionary byproduct. That at some point it helped us in our evolution to believe that there was meaning in this life, which I find that a little bit difficult to believe that if I look at a painting and have this emotional reaction to beauty, that that somehow helped me evolve appropriately. But let's say we just grant that. Let's say that is true. Here's what you just proved. Is that evolution tricked your brain into believing something that isn't true. In other words, that your mind and your intuition can't be trusted because they're actually illogical, right? Did you, did you catch that? Like what that means is that evolution has caused you to believe things that are illogical, which are unlogical, which means that your mind is inconsistent and untrustworthy. The problem is that you use your mind, your logic, and, and your intuition to get to your naturalistic assumptions about the world. So the very thing that led you to the conclusion that you made your conclusion disproves the very thing that you trusted. Here's why I'm going into depth to talk about this, is I know that it's difficult to believe some of the things about Christianity because I struggle with them personally. But I want you to know that when you go to explain what the meaning of life is and the point of this world, every worldview has issues, including the one that you hold. And if you subject your own worldview to the same criticism that you subject Christianity, I think you're going to find that you're going to find some pretty similar holes in that worldview as well. And so this is what I want to kind of argue tonight or kind of show you tonight. Is that there's another option. There's another option to believing that this world is meaningless. There's another option to being hopeless in this life. And here's what the option is, that the sea is real, that you long for it because it's a real place and that you can go there someday. C.S. Lewis, of course, says this best. I've like bombarded you guys with this quote on several sermons, but it's so stinking good. Just deal with it. He says this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation 
is that I was made for another world. If you have desires that nothing here can satisfy, it is a pointer to what God made as your home. And that place, and I'm here to tell you that that place is not only real, but that you can experience it someday and that that matters for your life now. The Christian hope is that you were made for another world and that Jesus can bring you home like nothing else can. And so I want to tell you about home. I want to read to you Revelation 21. So go ahead and flip there. This is some of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. Revelation 21. So Revelation's the the last book in your Bible. So almost to the very last pages of this book. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that heaven is a real place? So we've done a disservice to heaven by making it super weird, little fat babies with wings and halos, right? I don't know why we started making angels like that. That's nothing what angels are like. We're floating around on some cloud playing some stupid harp, and it just sounds boring, and I don't want to go there. We've done weird stuff to heaven. I'm talking about a real place that's coming. Do you believe that it's real? Okay, I know it's been a few years, but you guys went on the Stranger Things binge with me, right? Like, you, you all did this. Okay, if you didn't, it's worth it. It's just like straight 80s nostalgia. It's boyhood. It's like weird. It's just great. Okay. So there's like, there's two worlds in Stranger Things, right? There's the real world and then there's the upside down, right? So the upside down is this sort of like nebulous, kind of like hard to define, not really physical, sort of evil, terrifying place. And here's what I'm trying to tell you is that we currently live in the upside down. And when you die, you'll wake up to the real world. Like you're dreaming right now. Someday you'll wake up. This is the world that is relatively immaterial in comparison to the real thing that God made for you. Heaven is a real place. And it's not only real, but it's physical. Okay, so do you know that the place you go when you die is not your final resting place? It is not where you will be for eternity. Here's what I mean. Is you will immediately when you die, you will be in what's called paradise or temporary heaven. Yes, I just said temporary heaven. What that is, is that you're immediately caught up into the presence of God in a, in a kind of intangible spiritual way. And that is a beautiful place, but it is not where your hope is. 
It is not the final destination for which you were made. Look back. What does Revelation describe heaven as being like? It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so why would God describe heaven like earth? Maybe because it's like earth. You know? You see what I did there? He might have used that language intentionally. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean this, that someday God is going to recreate his creation. He's not just going to abandon it and let the whole thing burn. There's been this story that he's been writing throughout human history that he's going to bring to fulfillment on that day. And he's going to make a new earth like what we were supposed to live in initially until we fell only way better. So here's what that means is there's going to be mountains. There's going to be trees. I think there's going to be Colorado. I don't know for sure, okay? But like, I actually think there's gonna be like places that there are now there, only just like way better, okay? And, and here's what you're gonna do in the new heavens and the new earth is you're gonna explore earth. You're gonna climb stuff. You're gonna go on adventures with your new physical body that God gave you. Okay, it's not only an earth, it's a city. Okay, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healings of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, Let me read that again. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse will be gone. Can you imagine what that'll be like? Everything that sucks in your life is a result of the curse. No more death. No more crying. No more suffering. No more pain. No more sin. No more desire to sin. No more conflict, no more tension, no more war, no more competition, no more insecurity, no more self-doubt, none of that stuff, no more curse. It's banished. God kicks it out because he wants to live life with you the way that you were designed to live. The curse will be gone. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light. They will need no light of a lamp or of sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Okay, notice in there. He says that there's a new city coming. It's not as funny the second time. But why does he call it a city? Maybe because it'll be like a city. Right? So, what do I mean? That there's going to be culture there. That there's going to be food there. Like really good food. There's going to be drinks there. Shared responsibly. And it's going to be delightful. Okay? Heaven ta- when heaven talks about, or when the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about wine and feasts a lot. It's great. Okay? There's going to be food there. There's going to be entertainment. There's going to be everything good about a city and none of the bad stuff about a city. And it's, and look, it's not just a normal city. It's what theologians call a garden city. 
So you have everything good about a city, the the people working together, the the culture, the entertainment, the food, but then you have everything good about the country. You've got gardens, you've got rivers, you've got trees, you've got beauty. You don't feel confined and pent up. It's a garden city. Here's my point. Heaven's going to be pretty cool. Okay, that like summarizes this whole thing. But here's the question. What do we get to do in heaven? Because I don't care how cool it is, if I have to be there for eternity and I'm not doing anything, that's boring, right? Okay, look back at verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of a lamp or of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What are we going to be doing in heaven? Reigning. Okay, what does that mean? In the beginning of the Bible, this was an initial job descriptions of human beings is that God created the earth and then he made us and he said, hey, I want you guys to rule like kings in my image. I want you to take my glory and my goodness and I want you to spread it out over creation. I want you to declare my goodness in creation by ruling over it like kings. That was the initial vision. We bailed on that vision, but God renews it in heaven. So we will be reigning in the name of King Jesus over his brand new shiny creation. Okay, so I want to think about the implications of what that means. What it means to reign in a physical world that's a lot like this world, only way better. And Randy Alcorn, okay, that's one of the resources I gave you. He wrote this giant book on heaven that's kind of heady. It's like, it's one of my favorite books. It's unreal what that dude unpacks about heaven. I want to read you like an extended quote from him about this, okay? So listen in. Will the entire new universe be ours to travel to, to inhabit, to rule to God's glory? Okay, do I seriously believe the new heavens will include new galaxies, plants, moons, white dwarf stars, neutron stars, and black holes? Do I seriously believe that they'll include that? Yes. Will the new planets be mere ornaments or does God intend for us to reach them one day? Even under the curse, we've been able to explore the moon and we've had technology to land on Mars. What will we be able to accomplish for God's glory when we have resurrected minds, unlimited resources, complete scientific cooperation, and no more death? Will the far edges of the galaxy be within reach? And what about other galaxies? I imagine we will expand the borders of righteous mankind's Christ-centered dominion, not as conquerors who seize what belongs to others, but as faithful stewards who will occupy and manage the full extent of God's physical creation. Okay, process that a little bit. Essentially what he's saying is, I think we're going to be able to explore the new universe with Jesus and rule over it with him. And I think he's right. I think he has biblical precedent for that. So in other words, what are we going to be doing in heaven? Ruling Saturn. I really think that. I could be wrong. I think there's good evidence for it. We will be exploring God's new creation. That sounds awesome. Heaven is an adventure that never ends with the greatest being who's ever existed. That sounds like a blast. Okay. That's not even the best part about heaven. Not even close. 
Let me tell you the best part about heaven. Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here's the best part about heaven is that God Himself will be there. And I know that rings a little bit empty now because we have no idea how amazing and how delightful it is to be in his presence, but I promise you that will be the best part about heaven. So, if I told you that I knew Barack Obama, would you be a little bit skeptical of that? Yeah, rightfully so. But then what if I told you this? Okay, Barack Obama, you know, like I, I, I know stuff about him. Like, he was the first African-American president. He was elected in 2008. He, he ran on the Democratic platform. He, his whole thing was like hope and change. And get this. I told you I knew Barack. I told you I knew him. When I was in college, this is true, by the way. When I was in college, Barack came to speak at my campus. It was nuts. There were snipers on the roofs of the buildings and stuff like that. They, like, essentially glued down every manhole on campus so that people couldn't pop out, out of them. It was crazy. Okay, so Barack came to speak at my campus, and I was in the crowd listening to him speak. See, I told you I knew Barack. Okay, what am I missing here? Knowing information and facts about someone or just being in their general vicinity is not the same thing as knowing them like a friend. Okay, because I was in his vicinity doesn't mean that I knew Barack Obama the way that I would know a friend. Here's the thing. Is there separation between us and God right now? Now, we can know him to a degree. We have his spirit inside of us, which is crazy. But here's what's also true, is that right now we kind of just know about God. Okay, like, but here's the thing, in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning of the Bible, nobody had to tell Adam and Eve what God is like because they knew him like a friend. They hung out with him. They walked through the garden with him. They didn't need the Bible. They didn't need something to describe to them what he was like because they could have written it because they knew him. And this is what will be true in heaven is you're not going to just know about God or be in his general vicinity. You're going to know him like a friend. You will consider him a friend, and he will consider you a friend. Now that in and of itself, that you have hope, that you have something to wait for that's going to be incredible, would be awesome in and of itself. But here's the deal. That news about your future impacts the way that you live now. Your hope for the future should inform and define the joy that you have now in life. So let me give you a couple ways that that happens. Okay, first way, if that home that's coming for us is that amazing and is that beautiful and is going to be that awesome, it will mean that you'll want to bring some of home here. Now, here's what I've been saying throughout this series is we can't build heaven here, but we can get little tastes of it. You can bring a little bit of home here in a few different ways. The first way is even though we're not entirely in the presence of God the way we will be someday, we do still get to be in the presence of God. This is what God did in salvation. It's not just kind of this arbitrary like, oh, Jesus can forgive you of your sins. He can do that, 
But salvation is God coming to live with you as you live with Him. He sends His very Spirit to live inside of you, which means that you have God with you all the time. Now, if, if the psalm is true, that in the presence of God is fullness of joy, and at, the right, at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. If in God's presence is where true joy is found, like the high-octane stuff, the good stuff, then that means that you have access to joy all the time because you have access to the Spirit and to God all the time if you're in Christ. So if I were to tell you, hey, I've got a way that you can be more joyful constantly, that you can live a better and more joyful life than you would have lived before, my guess is that you would listen up. And this is what I'm saying that is true. And it's going to take some work, but this is all it takes is you getting undistracted into the presence of God. If you do that, if you do the work to get into the presence of God consistently, I promise you that your life will be way better than it is now. I'm not saying it'll be easier. I'm not saying there won't be pain. I'm saying it will be better that you will be living in the very presence of joy. But here's the deal. That's going to take some discipline to do that because we're distracted people. I think, I'm going to sound like super just old and crotchety with this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's true. I think that one of Satan's greatest weapons in this life to distract you from ultimate unending joy is in your pocket. It's this little thing. You guys are addicts. I'm an addict. You are, we are a group of people who can't focus. We're, we're constantly distracted. And if Satan can distract you, then he's won. Because you're not actually engaging with the presence of God if you're completely distracted. And so this is what I want to encourage you to do every once in a while. Hit this little button on the side of your phone so that it goes black and no one can get in touch with you. I know you've never done that before. Try it sometime. Or if that scares you too much, just scroll up from the bottom, hit the little airplane. And no one still can't get in touch with, the, with you. They won't know that you're not on an airplane. And just, just go be with Jesus. Like just go walk around in the woods somewhere. Just like get lost. Just sit somewhere quietly and like think about nothing for a minute. It's amazing. You don't have to be stressed and worrying about the next thing all the time. Just wake up and sit there. And then maybe pray. And I seriously think your life will change if you do that enough. This is funny because I just told you to shut off your phone. But then after you turn it back on, set an alarm on your phone. And set it towards the end of the day. And then when it goes off, just remember that God exists and that you should spend some time with him. And just like pray about your day and thank him for the good stuff that happened. And then think about your day tomorrow and ask him to be present in it. I seriously think that'll change your life. Okay. You can be in the presence of God now if you're willing to go for it. You can bring a little bit of that home here. Second way you can bring home here is you can give up what you need to now to invest in a better life to come. So I don't know if any of you guys have had a Thelma's ice cream sandwich. Uh, I, they, at least they were at Target for a while. I don't know if they still are. They're delicious. If you see them, you should eat them. Um, but I met with the CEO of Thelma's ice cream uh, this past week. 
And he's a dude that was like a super driven dude in college and he wanted to start a business because he wanted to make 100K like straight out of college. And he had all these giant goals for his life. One of them was that he was gonna buy a bunch of land in Alaska and go big game hunting. So that was like his dream for his life. And he'd been talking about that like ever since he graduated from college. But then he met Jesus and Jesus started messing with him as he tends to do, which I love. And so he's like gotten involved in the Salt Network. He's in one of our other churches and he's kind of new to this whole thing. But he started to get involved and his heart is starting to change. And so this is what he told me is that fairly recently he had just been pursuing like making as much money as possible to try and live this kind of dream life that he lived. And then he told me, he said, you know what, Jordan, I've, I've really changed my whole business structure and I'm, and I'm going to try and make a bunch more money and I'm getting in a bunch of new markets. A lot of them are up here. And he's like, because I would like to fund the Salt Network. I was like, cool, that sounds great. I don't know like how much of it he can fund, but okay, so we're planting a church at Michigan State next year and his goal is to like fund it, like the whole thing. I don't know if he'll be able to, but this is what happened is Jesus came into his life and his priorities changed and he can give up anything that he wants to now because he sees a better life and he's saying, why wouldn't I give up tiny microscopic crap now so that I could live for eternity? It's an investment for your eternity. Are you living for dumb stuff? Man, like, if you're living for like, to make your name famous, if you're living for that guy, for a little bit of sex, for some money, for greed, for your pride, I don't want you to like give that up for smaller dreams. I want you to have better dreams for your life. Jesus is so much better than that. Eternity is so much better than your little life right now. Are you willing to give it up because you have an investment coming in eternity? Some of you got fired up at the conference about doing big stuff for Jesus with your life and then you came back and you got in like the normal rhythms and then the whole like death winter hit us and you forgot about it. Do it. Like whatever that thing was that you were gonna do, actually just go do it. It's worth it. Like I'm talking to people who are, and I'll, I'll let him talk to you if he wants to. I'm talking to people who are saying like that 2021 church plant, like I'm going. I don't care where it is. I'm holding you to that person in the crowd. Um, I'm just going. How about you guys? You want to go? You want to go be a part of something crazy? You want to just decide to go give your life to it? Here's the next thing that having perspective on eternity gives you. And it allows you to get through anything that you have to go through in this life. So Drew, our head pastor, a lot of you heard, he's had like just a rough year already. And then a lot of you heard he was diagnosed with lupus. Um, lupus is an autoimmune disorder that it's, it's kind of a catch-all term. It's hard to know what it's going to mean, but it certainly means that the rest of his life is going to be pretty hard. There's no cure. Uh, he's on like some crazy diet right now where he literally can eat like coconut oil, olive oil, fish in like a few vegetables, like not even all the vegetables. And it's just, it's just hard. And this is how Drew told me that he had lupus. He called me and he said, Jordan, guess what? Then <laughs> he said, I have lupus. And then he laughed. That's how the conversation went. A little bit because that dude is kind of crazy. He's kind of a crazy person, but mostly because he has hope. 
that the pain that he's experiencing now, he knows is like a tiny drop in an ocean of joy for eternity. And he can get through that tiny drop because he knows he's got heaven coming. He knows he's got eternity. So there's this um, painting that I have in, a, in my room, in my office, that I try and look at every day that a, a friend actually painted for me. I think I've got a photo of it, maybe. Um, if not, I'll describe it. There we go. So this is the painting. So if you can see over here, that's like a little ship in some waves and a storm. Okay, so that's me in this life. The reason I wanted her to paint this is because I wanted to remember what this life was like. This life is usually just a storm that I'm just getting thrown around. And it, and it feels dangerous. It feels, it feels scary. At times it feels hopeless, like I'm never getting out of it. But here's the deal. Jesus is a lighthouse. And he's standing in eternity when the crowd's clear. And he's facing me. And I'm facing him. And he's saying, just keep going for a little bit longer. And if I just keep looking at that lighthouse, I can get through any storm because I'm working towards the time when the storm breaks and I get to just rest. That's my life. And so that means I can get through anything now because the storm's about to break. I want you to live like that. Okay, so let me just kind of close this up with this. What are the stories that have kind of captured your heart? So I grew up reading Harry Potter and I like, I wanted to be, I wanted to be in the room of requirement and get like whatever I wanted. I wanted to drink butter beers with Hermione and like throw our feet up and chill, right? Like, not just Hermione. It wasn't, okay. Anyway, <laughs> let's just move on. I like, I like put myself in that story, right? And I wanted to live there. That story was awesome. Like Avatar, right? I don't know if you guys saw Avatar, but I wanted to like run around that planet with my shoes off, you know? If you're not into like that stuff, like sports, I wanted to beat Tiger Woods at the Masters and I practiced my fist pumps and I know his specific fist pumps from like different tournaments. We'll talk about that another time. But I got caught up in these stories, right? Like, okay, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're emotional or if you're tough. You're dreaming about some story. You're caught up in some story, some fantasy that you grew up believing, and maybe you still believe it, and maybe you're going to pursue that thing, but eventually it's going to die. Like universally, it's not going to be what you expected it to be. And there's a couple things that you can do at that point. You either can give up on something good, or you can play the game like your life really is amazing and hope that you can convince yourself and convince other people. But what I'm telling you is that when you start to doubt that this world actually can give you what you're hoping for. You're right that it can't come true in this world, but you're wrong that it can't come true. Like what if the dream, what if the desire of your heart was a longing for a real place and you could go there if you knew Jesus? Like, like there's this giant wall between who you are and who you were meant to be. Picture like the Hoover Dam and you're on the bottom half of it and Jesus and the life that you were supposed to live is up at the top. And here's what Jesus did in the resurrection, is he punched a hole through that dam, and heaven is starting to leak into earth. And I'm telling you, the day is coming when he's going to come back, and he's going to break down the whole wall, and heaven will flood earth, and earth will become heaven, and you will get to be a part of that.
And for your whole life, reality has never been able to live up to your fantasy. You've always been able to dream and imagine things that are better than the real thing. But this is what I'm telling you. In heaven, your imagination can't live up to reality. Like you dream about whatever amazing thing you want. I've got amazing dreams about heaven. I'm going to have a pet lion. I'm going to ride it around. I'm going to play golf off of it, but it actually would be kind of like polo, and it's going to be great. I can dream about some amazing stuff, and heaven will put it to shame. Reality will be better than your imagination. That's the hope that you have. And if you will choose to live like that hope is real, then you can have joy in this life, and you can bring a little bit of that hope here. Let me pray. Jesus, that's such a cool story, and I praise you for it. Help us to believe. Help us to believe that heaven is real. Help us to get excited for that day. And would we live with joy now as a result? God, for the people in here that are struggling, that are struggling to believe, that are struggling to have hope, just help them to believe again to believe that their wildest dreams actually could come true through knowing you. That, that craving in their heart is for a place that's real. And Jesus, I can't wait for you to come back and take us there. You've been so, so good to us. And we're excited to be with you someday. We love you. Amen.